Previously on Colors. I was born in the Gambia as a Fulani in the Upper River uh, Division of the country. Came to the United States in 1975. His name is Jeru Bande. I come from a very rich history. Uh, going back to my great-great-grandfather, uh, Musa Molo, who was the great king of Fuladu. He's brought that rich history and culture to Montgomery County, Maryland. My job as one of the five regional directors is to be the link between our county government and our respective regions, in my case, the East County is extraordinary and important story. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Where do we stand? African Americans are really dealing with a nightmare in many respects. Alexis Taylor is the managing editor of The Afro. We're still leading in mass incarceration. We're still in neighborhoods facing housing discrimination. Um, We're still leading in health disparities because the homes that we can get are in neighborhoods that are food deserts. And so, yes, we are 60 years away from the March on Washington. There is a lot to commemorate. There's a lot to applaud that has happened in the last six decades, the last 60 years has uh, has been a time of progress for African-Americans in this country, but there's still a lot more to do. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Injustice. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. The 60th anniversary of the March on Washington was just about 10 days ago. It's September 8th, 2023. And to look at what has been accomplished and what is yet to be accomplished, and essentially for some context on this, we spoke with Alexis Taylor from The Afro, who is the managing editor. And she, as always had some really thought-provoking things to say. Alexis, the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. What is the significance of this? Why should it be significance? Uh, why should it be significant in our thinking? I believe in our thinking, and of course, this is the Afro-American newspaper, so everything has that Black lens to it. But um, for African-Americans right now, uh, like Al Sharpton said when he uh, did a commentary for us last month, uh, this is a crossroads. This is a crossroads for America, for the country as a whole. But for African-Americans, yes, we are six decades away from that dream that, that Dr. Martin Luther King had and the dream that it has been, 
you know, it's gone around the world. Everyone knows of the dream that Dr. Martin Luther King had, but 60 years later, somehow African-Americans in this country are still dealing in, in sorry, um, African-Americans are really dealing with a nightmare in many respects. We're still leading in mass incarceration. We're still in neighborhoods facing housing discrimination. Um, we're still leading in health disparities because the homes that we can get are in neighborhoods that are food deserts. And so, yes, we are 60 years away from the March on Washington. There is a lot to commemorate. There's a lot to applaud that has happened in the last six decades, the last 60 years years has uh, has been a time of progress for African-Americans in this country, but there's still a lot more to do. Okay, so let's break this apart and, and talk first about some of the things that Dr. King talked about originally uh, and that took place during that march that defined some of the goals that were laid out that um, they, uh, the forefathers and the leaders at that time, wanted essentially to achieve. What were some of the key concerns at that time? Well, it's right in the name, the March on Washington. And so we shorten it and we say the March on Washington. But when you really look at the full name of the march, it's the March on Washington for jobs and for freedom. And still today, those are two key points that we are marching for. And so when you look back at the original march, you know, yes, we have had, you know, integration success, but, you know, you look 60 years later and you're still fighting for equality in education, equality in healthcare. Um, you know, when it comes to freedoms, like I said, mass incarceration, those numbers are led by black and brown bodies. And that plan for black and brown bodies is only accelerating. It shows no, you know, no uh, hint of slowing down when you're talking about the prison industrial complex here in this country. And so when I think about jobs and freedom, when I think of what the original organizers talked about, um, which was, you know, the right to earn a living wage. You know, Dr. King wasn't shot when he was talking about integration. Dr. King was shot and killed, murdered when he was talking about um, having access to, uh, to equal pay, access to a living wage so that you can have that freedom to live where you want to, you know, to evolve into who you want to be. And so those are some of the things that they talked about 60 years ago. And still today, um, the organizations are putting that at the forefront. When you think of Dr. King, when you see those grainy black and white images of him speaking, when you hear that ring that he had to his voice, what comes to your mind? That even though these images are grainy and black and white, it wasn't that long ago. And so in 2023, I love that we have technology to make some of those images um, in color. We, we have that technology to add color to the photos, to make it real and to help people understand that it wasn't that long ago. And to further prove that uh, right now, the Afro News Facebook has the live stream from earlier this week. We talked to multiple people who were there on that day 60 years ago. Those people are still around. So yes, it's a grainy image. Um, you know, it's a it's a image. Those images have gone around the world. The Afro images have gone around the world. Um, but those people are still around. And I when I think of the people being there on that day and then being there tomorrow, 
I, I look at their progress, the arc of progress in, in the life of a Black person. You know, I, I love to think of that. You know, we had people on that live who were saying that at the time that this march originally happened, they were going to segregated schools. And now they live, live in a world where we've had our first African-American uh, president. And I do mean African-American in the truth, I mean, not the you know, how we use it, but, you know, he had an African father and a white American mother. Um, he's of color, you know, there's no, you know, you have that little bit of black, you're black. So we've had our first black president. Um, and just to see the arc of progress that those people have experienced in their lives, like, I, I think that's beautiful. Um, but I also see that some of the same things that they were fighting for then, they're still fighting for today. And so I, I that's what I think of when I see those black and white images. That's that's really interesting that you said that the arc of progress, you said that twice. And um, part of the reason why I think it's interesting, because the main thing that I think of when I think of Dr. King, and, and, and actually I think of a lot of things and I think of him often, but whenever I speak and, 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 and I, I quote him, the one that comes to my mind most frequently and the one that has so much meaning to me is he said, uh, the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends towards justice. And so I want to ask you what your thoughts are about that quote and where are we in that arc? Ooh, that's a good question, JJ. <laughs> where are we in that arc? Uh, like Dr. King said, it, the arch is long, okay? Um, 60 years in, I would say um, that we are, I would say that we're at the halfway mark. Um, oh, wow. We're at the halfway I would say we're we're at the halfway mark, if not, you know, quickly approaching halfway, um, because I mean, I live in a state where we have our first black governor. We right. have so many um, things that have changed here in our state, the state of Maryland, um, that I do see that progress. Um, but we still have a ways to go. And so um, I when I hear that quote, the first thing that I think of is the mother's. I think of the mothers of the youth um, and not just youth, but the black men who have been killed as a result of police brutality. Um, that's what first comes to mind, because those women um, that, you know, we've seen Trayvon Martin's mother, we've seen, you know, the, the different faces, Breonna Taylor's parents, we've seen them um, in the media eye. Um, but it's like I feel. I think of them because we are moving towards justice. I mean, and like I said, police brutality comes to mind first. Um, we are seeing laws changing about no-knock raids. We are seeing uh, people, you know, in higher positions. You know, it's not enough to have a Black representative or official, but we're actually seeing them get the power to investigate and and get rid of cops who are you know costing the city money on an annual basis because of these police brutality cases and so when i think of the moral art bending and it's long but it bends towards justice i feel like I, I, that's what i think of i think of those police brutality cases um and how we are slowly making progress towards justice, but it's sad that we have to have so many sacrificial lambs to make that change. You know, yeah. we should have been 
had a, a pause on no knock warrants and things like yeah. that, but it took Breonna Taylor yeah. to to bring it to the forefront. And so that's what I think of. It's long. I'm sure those mothers have had long nights. You know, they go years and years without yeah. justice. And, and we finally see some change, maybe on a national level, maybe not even where, yeah. where you know, their child died. But um, that's what I think of. Yeah. So um, you, the Afro-American, has been out there agitating for change for many years. And here on the 60th anniversary of this march and the speech, you know, the, the March for Jobs and Freedom and the whole kit and caboodle that you're talking about here, that, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's become lore. I mean, a lot of people, it's become historical. You know, it's faded into the recesses of history, and it's something that they think about as historical. But this is an actual organic thing, as you pointed out so many times today, and you do every every edition of the Afro that you put out. So what is it that the Afro seeks at this juncture, 60 years after this speech? What is what is the message that the Afro with its work wants to portray, wants to um, share, and, 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 and wants to champion at this point? Uh, well, first, the Afro-American newspapers is a paper of record. And so the same way that we document to the, the struggles of Black people 60 years ago. We want to be there today uh, to document the people who come out for this, the people who are saying, I'm spurred into action based on what I see on a day-to-day basis in this country. And so our first goal is to be a paper of record, to put on record what Black people are saying um, they're fighting for and marching marching for. Um, I love looking in the archives and seeing the people from Ghana who were in the crowd that day. So tomorrow we'll have our international writer, Daquan Lawrence, out specifically looking for international um, participants. Um, I love that we documented the women who were in the crowd that day. We'll have Helen Bazune there tomorrow doing the same thing. And so that paper of record thing we take very serious. Um, we want to put it on record because as we see in 2023, there are people, not just people, average people, there are elected officials who are doing everything they can to change history and to paint things that happened in real life in a different light um, and outright lie about what happened. And so our first objective is to be a paper of record, but then, like you said, to agitate, to get ideas floating around, to get those conversations um, happening and not just happening on the street corners of D.C. and Baltimore and all across the country where people read the Afro, but get them happening in spaces where true change can happen. And so that is why we do welcome commentary from regular residents who have issues, but then we also welcome commentary from our elected officials because that is what we do. Um, we're not just putting it out just to have good stories. We're putting it out so that the, the conversations that need to happen to make change happen and they happen in the right places and in the right rooms. I'm sorry, I am sweating up a storm. <laughs> Alexis, no, that there is no need at all to worry about any of that because what we hear coming from you you know, as as wonderful as you are to look at, what we hear coming from you, the words are beautiful. And um, it, they're coming from a young person, too. 
They're coming from a person who has done the work, who knows the history, who's done the work, has prepared herself, who's done the work and is out there today sweating. And this is so poetic because that's what was happening on that day, 60 years ago, you know, and you're doing it today because you're out there doing that work. And that's what they were doing. So that's where I kind of like want to end this. And I'm going to ask you this question. Summarize your work. Summarize where your work is going and what you want your work to say to us, what you want your work to show. What I want our work to say is that um, Black people are very capable of voicing what they need and what they want. And they're very capable of advocating for themselves and making that change, you know, utilizing our allies and whatnot. But we have our own voice. And I love that the Afro is a community paper. Uh, I I love working here uh, because there are people on the street corners who stop us and tell us what's going on, what they want to see in the paper. And then there are people who read us, send in the clippings and give us, you know, the the responses to the editor. Um, There are elected officials who reach out and say, hey, this legislation is happening and we want people to know about it. We want people to um, weigh in on it. And so when I think of our job, I mean, aside from being a paper of record, um, I want people to understand that their voices matter. Um, We have beautiful stories that need to be told. And, you know, I, I love being a member of Black Press. I really do, because I see the power of word, of words. I see the power of um, putting down on record, you know, the the things that you want to see happen so that other people can read it and start having those conversations. And again, that's I think that's really what it comes back to. Um, and I know people say, well, it's just an article, but um, I'll tell you every every Friday I have a book table and I give out copies of the Afro. And this week on the cover, um, we were talking about I was talking about the cover with, you know, the people who walk by and a guy said, y'all need to cover more um, issues related to prisons and incarcerated persons. And I flipped up that that paper from this week and on our front cover this week. We have um, a, a story on how congressmen are trying to make movement on banning solitary confinement. Yeah. And so, you know, that is why we're here to let people know. And he sat there, read the article, talked about his own experiences. And that's what we're here for, to make connections, to let people know you are seen, you're heard. Even if you are in lockup right now, thank you for those subscriptions, those subscribers who we have who are um, in prison and inmates right now. They still read the Afro. And so that's a perfect example of we even we see everyone. We want to cover all issues related to the black community. And and it's just a beauty every week to be able to curate this paper and get those voices out there. Um, I'm trying to do a little bit more talking in the paper. I'm trying to get some some commentary out there. Um, But I think that is our main job to agitate and to amplify the voices of the community so that those conversations can be had in the right rooms to make change. Well, you've done it. There's more work to do but you've done exactly what you stated and set out to do. Thank you for it. Thank you for showing up today. And thank you for weathering this, this weather. 
yes. do this. Uh, it is a, it is a statement that I think I will remember for a while because it's so poetic what's happening today uh, in our country, but also uh, the juxtaposition between that this March 60 years ago and what's taking place today you being on the front lines with your newspaper and everything. So thank you. I appreciate you. And I appreciate you taking time to talk with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, JJ, for the invite. It was a pleasure to be here again. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. My name is Anna Smith. I was born in South Korea, grew up in Washington, D.C., and identify as multiracial, black, white, Korean. So I grew up in a really small, white, predominantly white town outside of Washington, D.C., about an hour outside of the city, in a white family. My parents are both white. I have a brother who's full Korean and two siblings who are also white. I was one of two Asian Americans in my class of a little over 100, and we're each half Asian. And so if that tells you anything about um, uh, the community I grew up in, uh, I I don't know that I even knew. And again, the, the privilege of not having to think about race, that was the world in which I grew up and, and, and you know, for many, many years, never really had to reflect on being a person of color. As crazy as that might sound, it was teaching in Miami where my students would look at me and say, well, Ms. Smith, you, you speak Spanish, but you're not, you're not Spanish. You're not black, therefore you must be white. And they would confuse me frequently with Ms. Nelson, the blonde haired, blue eyed teacher down the hall. Hmm. Because if we're both white people, they, they didn't see Asian. They don't know what Asians are. There's not a, a, a presence. They, they weren't sure which box to put me in. Right. And it was eye opening for me and having to really think about who I am and what I am um, and in terms to be able to explain it to second graders. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The brutal Native American boarding school system. The thing that was most shocking is learning that it existed in the first place. Yulia Parshinakotas, a graphics and multimedia editor at the New York Times. Learning the stories, informing myself about it, and it was such an emotional, such an emotional journey. Children were robbed of their culture, family bonds, and sometimes their lives. When the Carlisle Indian Industrial School opened, it put every Native person on notice across the uh, continent. Zach Levitt is also a graphics and multimedia editor at the New York Times. We dig into this heartbreaking but necessary-to-be-told story. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. That's it for another episode of Colors. Thank you, Jesse Gallagher. Thank you, Off Shane. Thank you, Cosmic, for the music. Thanks to everyone who helped us put this episode together. Most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.